you know, and I think that's kind of the point of, of, of the world, isn't it? That we can leave it in a better place for our children than we inherited it, so they can leave it in a better place for their children, as each of us, you know, are stewards, really, rather than owners of, of the present. And um, that, that, that opportunity to create a better world is through, through our children. If we want to build a better future, what better way than raising resilient, innovative, compassionate children? My guest today, Paul Lindley, is a British entrepreneur, author, father, and champion for children's welfare. He believes the future of our world depends on rethinking policy and politics to focus on children and young people. His journey from revolutionizing the organic baby food industry to deputy manager of Nickelodeon UK and as trustee guiding Sesame Street to his many other roles devoted to human rights and children's welfare led the late Queen Elizabeth to honor him as an officer of the British Empire. In this episode and in his new book, Raising the Nation, Paul builds a compelling case showing why we must nurture smart, strong, and kind children to one day inherit the stewardship of society. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, Paul Lindley, and welcome to the podcast, How We Change the World. How are you? Very good, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me on. I'll just say that you are, we're speaking to you from 30 minutes from London. You said, what's the name of the town you're in or the city? Henley on Thames, famous for rowing around the world. And are you a rower? <laughs> uh, a fair weather rower. It's very, very cold. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I didn't say you had to do it on the coldest day. <laughs> you are familiar. Um, well, let's start with, um, you have the initials OBE after your name. That's not uh, something that Americans are as familiar with. So can you explain what that is? Right. Well, <laughs> that is, um, we have an honor system in the UK that recognizes uh, public work or excellent work in the UK. And I was absolutely privileged about four years ago to um, be recognized and be honored with this medal that you get. I got it from the Majesty of the Queen. Um, oh. And it stands for Order of the British Empire, but it's really an order of British excellence, um, which I don't know how your name gets put forward. But it's an incredible honor um, to meet the Queen. I'm very, very proud. Oh, um, but it represents the work that I've done, the people I've worked with, that contributed to the stuff I've done as well. Well, your, your entire life has been a testament to making the world better. So I think that was probably well, well deserved and lovely that, that they did recognize you for that. So congratulations. Well, let's just start by saying you are a very successful entrepreneur. Uh, you're the founder, I think you started about 20 years ago, of a business called Ella's Kitchen, which you named after your daughter, um, and then, which we'll, we'll talk about, and then, um, which is a, a children's, a organic baby food and children's food line. Um, and then you also started Patty's Bathroom, which um, is an organic toddler toiletries brand, so really named after mm -hmm. your son, so that, that's a beautiful thing to do. Um, and I know that Ella's Kitchen took off like gangbusters it's now selling over 100 million in sales the biggest brand in in london and er, in the uk and is it also in the us now uh, yeah it's been in the us for um 10 years perhaps oh um I haven't been down that yeah. aisle as much lately <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that 
<laughs> so, so Americans of uh, baby feeding ages are probably very, very familiar with that. So that that's exciting, and and I know you sold it, and you've moved on to other things. Hmm. Um, you're also the deputy manager of Nickelodeon UK for nine years, which is is that correct for nine years? Yes, yeah, was, that's, yeah. I don't know how. And then trustee of the Sesame Workshop, which is the, which are the creators of Sesame Street. Um, so, and, but your interests are so varied and rich. So you're also the chair of the Robert F. Kennedy human rights in UK, I think is that in the UK mm -hmm. or, okay. Yeah. And, and also you have a new gig as chancellor. What is that? <laughs> um, so I'm <laughs> of the university, the university of Reading in the UK. I'm not sure in the U.S. there's an equivalent, uh, position, but. It's kind of a figurehead position um, where I mm. have the privilege of giving the degrees out to graduates and postgraduates. Um, and, but I also have the uh, chairman, chairperson kind of role of helping the soft connections and sort of development of our strategy as a university. So asking what a university is for in a modern society, mm. who should go, who should pay for them. What does our university, uh, how does it stand out? What, how is it different? How can it attract excellent uh, researchers and, and graduates? Um, and really, uh, it's a pleasure to be with young people and see the vibrancy. Mm. That's what gives me energy. Some of the things you talked about that I've done are all to do with the children and young people. And, um, you know, when I reflect back, I think the person that you're seeing now and you're talking to now, you may see as a, a 50 something year old man, but inside of me, it's this little boy that I think is so curious, remains curious. And I think that's the thing that attracts me about the mm. excitement of young people, um, is their curiosity and their ability to, um, mix that curiosity with a bravery to question the world and an energy to do something about it. And I think that's how we get, that's, you know, the heart of what gives me the, me the energy to do some of the things I've done to try and nudge the world into a better place from the privilege that I've I, I got the opportunity to, to come yeah, from. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering because you're also, as we said, a father of two. Um, has mm. that has that been a huge factor in terms of inspiring you as well mm. to to work so daily, for the betterment? I got to sort of my children uh, grow up, and at every stage, the that looking through their eyes, my ability to look through their eyes and see the world as, as from when they were toddlers and everything was brand new mm. and the way they use their imagination and their curiosity and they got self-confidence and they were free thinking and, and just looked at the world like adults did. I, I, uh, I used that. Mm. I, I saw what I saw and put it into a book about six years ago called Little Winds and it's about the huge power of thinking like a toddler uh, uh, and it's really about as an adult world as we live now, if we could just refine a part of us when we were five years old to think about the world and look at the world in that place, I think we'd get to a much better place. So so when my kids were toddlers, I got inspiration from that. When they were teenagers and they were finding themselves and their place in the world mm -hmm. and questioning the world around them, the status quo and why things can't change and having, you know, vigorous pieces of them and, and, and helping them discover themselves and discover the world around them, I really enjoyed. And my kids are in their 20s now and they're forging their own lives, but I, I, uh, I, I remain involved with, with, with children and a lot of my work, and that is really what gives me the energy as we were speaking. Um, and, and, you know, the self-evidence uh, is that, you know, in the UK, I think it's probably very similar in the US, they are about 20% of our population, but clearly they're 100% of our future. 
So if we are looking to change mm-hmm. the world for the better, if it's going to be a different place in 10 or 20 years' time, then it's our children that that has to come through because those people who are going to be running the institutions and the businesses mm-hmm. and caring for you and I when we're in our older age are the children of today. And if they've not got the skills or the self-confidence um, or the communication skills or the, the entrepreneurial skills uh, or compassion and kindness and, 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 and way of looking at the world with, with, with curiosity, then we're not going to get to a better place. That's the key to unlock our, our, our world, the, the minds of our children. One of the, my great inspirations is Nelson Mandela. He kind of started me on my journey. I started my uh, career in the early 90s when he first became president of, uh, mm. of South Africa. And one of the first speeches that he gave was around, um, he gave two very close together. One was around the greatest revelation of a society's soul is in the way it treats its children. That, that really harnessed the thought in me. That is, that is, I was starting my career, I was starting to work with children, and I was thinking this is what's driving me going forward. And, and you know, ultimately, I guess it's ended up in a seed that germinated into the book that I wrote recently. Um, but the other thing that he said, he committed to his nation, he said, we will build prosperity and, uh, and the development of our nation um, using our nation's greatest asset, our children. Mm. We, we will build our country for our children. Um, and, you know, and I think that's kind of the point of, of, of the world, isn't it? That we can leave it in a better place for our children than we inherited it, so they can leave it in a better place for their children as each of us, you know, are stewards, really, rather than mm. owners of, of the present. And... Um, that, that, that opportunity to create a better world is through, through our children is what you're going to hear and what the listeners and viewers are going to hear. Well, and you know, it's, I, I'm glad because it, it is um, so ironic, I think, that this seems to be as clear as the nose on our face, right? Of course, children are the future. Of course, raising them and giving them everything that we can to support them would make sense that it would build a better world for everybody. And yet, just those simple words that that Nelson Mandela said that you have been that you've also said, it seems like, well, of course, you know. But and yet, and yet, we don't have policies that would support that type of thinking. We don't have the the, the carry through. So, you know, what is the disconnect between what seems yeah. to be clearly no one would disagree with the premise that you've that you've laid out or that he laid out? And yet we, you know, put money or we put other things in the way. But why are we so yeah. unaware of yeah. the truth? Well, you know, you just look, you know, if, if 20% of the people in our countries are children and young people, um, the great majority of them, if, if you ask children what is really important in the world or in their life, you know, I don't know, kindness, something around kindness would come mm. really high. Being nice to each other, be, being secure with, with, with nice people. Is really high. Let's call it kindness. You mm. ask adults, and I don't think that comes in the top five in most uh, surveys that you do. So we get lost with other things in life. Yeah. And so, you know, they are human beings, but they are people. I, I highlight in my book that, you know, 50% of people that ever lived have died before they become adults. They're children. You know, if, if, if they, if you they mean over the history of landed time? on our earth, they would see human beings as children. Mm. That's the, that's the, um, and so, you know, what they think and how they think about life is really, really important to who we are as human beings, as a society, as a, as a, as a being. And, um, and it gets lost between, you know, 
the, 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 the little things in life that actually become big things in life, where a country's border is. Well, you know, kids will see kids on either side of that yeah, border. Right. Or, and, and, you know, and, and life is obviously much more complicated. We've got limited resources and we've got to work out a way as a society to prioritize where we spend those resources and who gets the benefit for them. My argument from my life or my dedication in the work that I've done is that kids get a raw deal in that generally. Mm-hmm. In, in, in time spent on them, in money spent on them, in our physical space, the, the, the public space that we have that is available to all of us, none of us own, all of us can enjoy, kids are excluded from certain parts of that space. In the UK, the roads, um, there are twice as many cars on the roads that children have to navigate around now than there were when I was a child. Mm-hmm. So they're generally excluded. It's less safe to play. It's less safe to walk to school or cycle to school on those roads. The, the motorist has more rights or, or seen in culture and legislation that has more rights to use those those roads. Mm-hmm. Yet, you know, children are part of our society. They've got every right to use that public space for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. So what do we do about that? You know, and some, some schemes in some parts of this country close roads at certain times of the day to motorists so that kids can walk to school, so that they can be healthier, so they can breathe cleaner air. But there's lots of objections to that. So it's very rare. But, you know, we've got to decide as a society to take that one very small thing. What do we want? What do we want our politicians to, to um, have, uh, you know, use their, their power to allocate resources over? Do we want the healthiness of our kids and the clean air that our kids breathe to get to school, to, to learn and to, to be healthy? Or, you know, it might not be binary, but or do we want workers and commuters to drive to work 20 minutes quicker, 10 minutes quicker, five minutes quicker to be able to uh, produce more, let's say, cigarettes, if they work for cigarettes. But <laughs> it increases the right. GDP of our country, but doesn't do anything for the health of our country. Well, and, and I think we'll talk about that in just a moment, about how almost the, 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 the rate of the GDP is almost it's it's opposite of what you would you know the higher the gdp mm. sometimes the 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 less happy the children are in the country so but before we, we go any further I, I do want to mention the name of your book that because i wanted to speak about that quite a bit today um and you mentioned some of the things in the book about you know ch- where children play and how they move and um but let's and i i want to go into a lot of those and but i want to start with this big premise of What's the big picture here? What's the what's the book about, and what is the premise of the book? So it's ta- it's titled "Raising the Nation: How to Build a Better Future for Our Children and Everyone Else's." And you you you're speaking about um, the UK, but it's completely as a person in the US who read that. I mean, it, there's nothing in there, not one sentence or one word. I think that doesn't exactly relate to at least what we're experiencing in this country. It's definitely not true everywhere. There's a lot of other countries where this is not. Their kids are not suffering from the same problems that they're suffering for in some of these uh, wealthier nations, frankly. But, um, and I, I also, I guess, want to mention before we go on into the book is that you were raised in in Africa for a good portion of your life, and and mm-hmm. that, did that influence this uh, mindset that you brought to? Sure, did because we each of us are a product of kind of our experience, our, mm-hmm. our, our, our view of life, and of and I grew up. I had the privilege to grow up in Zambia for many years and I, I got to see you know a different environment a different relationships between peoples there and uh, and different problems and different opportunities and you know one of the things that i've learned through my 30-year career is really whether you're operating a business 
or in a family, the more opportunity you have to experience wider things, the better decisions and the better experience and the better contribution mm. you can make. So mm -hmm. build a team in a business that has a diversity of people, um, whether that's their heritage and their background or whether it's their professional experience, you want everyone like that in the room so you can make the best decisions. And, right. um, you know, the, the opportunity I had as a child was to grow up in the UK and in, in Zambia, and that brought different perspectives. And I hope I've, I've, I've learned from that. But, you know, so, so I, I did have a, diff, a different sort of childhood, but, and everything comes together, I guess, in the last, as I say, 30 years of work to, to writing my book, Raising the Nation. And really, as, as you ask what its focus is, and I, I, I guess it's really a simple proposition to challenge what success looks like for society. That's what it mm -hmm. is. And see if we can collectively find mm. ways to explore, to create that better future for our children. But if our children have a better future, we all have a better future. And I guess my answers are around big public policies um, uh, that, that, that are designed to help children thrive. So that's kind of my measure of how well a society, I think we should, as human beings, work out whether we're doing well. Are our children thriving? Um, and at the moment, far, far too many don't, through no fault of their own, but they don't feel significant and they don't become the people that they have the potential to be. And our countries are poorer economically, socially, culturally, because not of all of our children become the people that they, they've got the potential to be. And yeah. so that's, that's how I think we have arrived in 2024. Um, and I think we can change things. And I think, you know, other countries, as you say, don't uh, have taken a different course. Other generations took a different course. Mm -hmm. And so my book is full of ideas and optimism and opportunity to be better, to do something about it. If our measure of success is how well our children thrive. So I guess I took my 30 years of experience, as you say, I've worked for Nickelodeon for 10 years. I worked for Ella's Kitchen, my, my baby food company, for, for 10 years. And then over the last 10 years, I've done some of the things that you talked about, human rights education work, working for Sesame Workshop and, and, and Sesame Street. Um, I was chair of London's Child Obesity Task Force for the Mayor of London, and looking at that specific issue across um, my country's capital, um, and and the uh, Chancellor of University. So, all of that work has given me a perspective and, uh, and thoughts and knowledge about children, but it's also given me a huge network um, of people that are much more expert than I am in specific areas. So for two years, I reached out to many of them and asked them to write essays that are in the book. There's a former prime minister in there, there's cabinet ministers, there's mayors, there's academics, business leaders, charity leaders, and lots of people with real lived experience of it going wrong in childhood, which they could do mm -hmm. nothing about. So there's a 16-year-old uh, young woman and, and 18 and a 20 year old written in there. And so their perspective, their, that what, what they've learned and what they think a government or a society could do about the problem that they, they've, they've got an idea about what, what's changed. And, um, you know, I did my own research looking at what happens in other countries where their culture promotes thriving children or they set mm -hmm. laws, um, to help their children develop and be the people they could perceive. And I've looked at my own country at small things that are happening in local towns or with small businesses or with charities that are doing projects where their children thrive from. And so trying to pull that together to say, 
what's the big idea that a country could do to change its perspective about, you know, actions to put, change that perspective about what success looks like? And, you know, I think that the National Schools and Service kind of idea that I put together that, that sort of, in a way, is around how we prioritize our country's assets and the country's budget, the national budget that the country has, and how we can, and, 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 you know, kids get a raw deal of that share of, of those assets now. And um, my, my whole proposition is we can do something about it. So here's some ideas. Let's begin a conversation and talk about which right. ones might work, which ones might not, which ones we desperately care about, because, you know, I can give you all sorts of statistics. I mean, just let me give you three or four, perhaps, that sort of set the tone that if, if people are hearing this and saying, well, you know, kids, you know, have never had it so good. Well, I can tell you that, you know, a third of the kids in the UK live in poverty. That is twice the proportion of kids that when I was a child lived in poverty. We've brought yeah, older age poverty down in our country massively, which is a tremendous thing, but it's kind of been at the expense of young people. Um, and so that's an astonishing number. Poverty. Just, I just kind of want to put an exclamation point on that. It's nearly a third of the children in the UK are living yeah. in poverty. And, yeah, and it is, you not. have the sixth highest GDP of any country in the world. But that's right. So since I was a child, so, our GDP has doubled, mixed. yet the number of children in poverty has also doubled. Yeah. So where's I might so go? Well, it's going to a different part of the society who right. isn't being passed down to, uh, you know, we could get into lots of things about economics. We've, I've grown up in, a, in, a, in an era when uh, trickle-down economics was the, the kind of period yes. of capitalism, if you like, yeah. and it hasn't trickled down. It's, it's basically no. where we've got to. It hasn't trickled down the generations, never mind the social structures of society, uh, you know, and then you look at uh, one in six of our children in the UK have a diagnosed mental health issues, which is 60% up in the last three years. So that's mm. a serious thing for our children. If they can't cope with, uh, their, with their relationship with themselves, with others, with, with, their, with their environment, mm. with the world, um, you know, if we're looking to the future, we have got to do something about that as a society. Um, and, uh, you know, the, t the play is a thing that I focus on a lot in my, in my book. It is often seen as a, a nice to have in society or, or you know, nice to thing to spend right. public money on. But actually, it's fundamental to how uh, our children grow, all of us as human beings. It helps with socialization, it helps with cognitive function, it helps with uh, personal, physical, and mental health and creativity and working out problems. But the, the opportunities to play, whether that is in physical space, in my country, half mm -hmm. of our youth centers have closed down in the last 10 years. Where the, where the mm. young teenagers go, if they're not going to youth centers, they go on the street, older people object to that, and the kind of things come from that. Um, about 500 of our playgrounds in my country have closed in the last six or seven years. Yeah. Um, so the toddlers what? are getting nowhere to play. And then when you look at huh. that space, you look at time, I know in the U.S. this is very similar. I've seen statistics. The recess time in, in, in the school day um, has gone down by about an hour a week over the last decade. Yeah. Same in the U.K. We call it break time. Um, so, so, so break time where kids can play has been squeezed out of the curriculum. Kids are playing about a tenth of the distance that they did from home um, than my generation did. So parents are very worried about letting their kids out of their sight and where they can play. Right. For the reasons that you cited earlier. And they're going miles away where the parents have no idea where they're going. 
So there's a whole, there's that's, a whole a yeah, digital play versus free play. So the, the play is a big thing. So I'm just kind of trying to highlight that, you know, that, that yeah. all this led up to the point that made me write the book that germinated that seed that I said that Mandela set about revealing the society's, the, 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 how society's soul is by how it treats its children to when COVID hit. And, you know, in the UK, we opened pubs and bars before we opened schools when we had to lock them down. What's that mm. about us? That, that, that adults can go and play in a pub and kids can't go to school or play in a playground because we shut the playgrounds too. And mm -hmm. those kids, those babies and toddlers from the, the lockdown times of COVID are now starting school here in the UK. And they are uh -huh. way behind developmentally for cognitive, mm -hmm. for speech and communication, for, uh, you know, things like the ability to use the toilet, um, many of them wearing diapers still. And that's a huge issues that are now putting pressure on our education system where mm -hmm. teachers, you know, have, to, have got to be educators, but they've also got to be social workers and medical people. And, and it's, you know, and, and we've not mm. kind of addressed many of those things. And it's our mentality but of who children are in our society that I think is, is what fundamentally changed. Um, at the moment in the UK, we have a uh, COVID inquiry, which is, is, is effectively like in a courtroom where lawyers are, um, witnesses are giving their evidence of what they did during COVID. People who are in charge of our country are in charge of, uh, oh, the, the of our country. Hmm. And the, the point is not to, to, to charge people or blame people of what went wrong, it's to learn mm -hmm. as a country what Hopefully. went wrong from yeah. the evidence that's presented. Yeah. But it's like in a courtroom, it's under oath. And Interesting. The, really telling thing about that is when the government set it up and set the the terms of reference for that um inquiry out what are we trying to do we're trying to learn what's the terms of reference for what it comes out to be that terms of reference didn't include a single one of the following words it didn't involve it didn't say anything single word of children child toddler baby college school nursery preschool it didn't even use the word play so if we're trying to learn what happened from from closing down our country in COVID, when children suffered the most from hmm. their breakdown in their social structure, their development and where they could go, yet were the least likely people to suffer serious health issues from the disease. And the learnings we're yeah. trying to learn from that don't think about children at all. That says something about our soul. Well, what it, what it seems that you're referring to is the value of the country because, you know, we'll, we'll talk about some other countries and whether we look at Norway or um, uh, the Netherlands, you know, countries where, where children do seem to be thriving and happier and more well-adjusted, mm -hmm. um, you know, is, is that what the difference is? I, I spent a lot of time in uh, Belize. My son lives there in the country of Belize in, South, in Central America. Um, it's a third world. It's a I won't call it that. It's a developing nation. It, they, they it's rather poor still, and uh, those children are the happiest children, as you see oftentimes in countries that are, you know, less developed or less wealthy. So, is it the value system that we're struggling with? Because there's plenty of money, there's plenty of know-how, there's plenty of intelligence, and there's mm. plenty of opinions, and there's even a court of inquiry, mm -hmm. and yet the value of of the children doesn't seem mm. to be there. Um, I'd hope that the values of the society hasn't changed, although as life gets more complicated and daily issues come up more, as in mm. from a personal perspective, we have a cost of living crisis now and there's inflation and everything, how do people afford things? And then as a government level, the world's crazy and, you know, what you focus on. Um, 
the 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 benefit to children of society and the importance of them as, 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 a, as, as a complete society has got lost. That's what I'd say. So my country has had the same uh, government for the last 13 years, you know, without getting party political, the core constituency of what keeps that government in power are older people. And so they get the lion's share of the political dividends from that government being in power. So yeah. they get a triple lock of their pensions, which is like it will be protected against inflation and uh, the economic growth of the country. Um, but children don't get that for the amount of money that's spent on per pupil in a school. So, so the, 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 the prioritization, the political prioritization has gone up the generations rather than down the generations. As the leadership that, that, got older, as, is what you're saying? As the party uh, that's in power knows that its voters it, are older people. Oh, knows that its voters are, okay. Well, so I, older people them. have children and grandchildren too, and this is what, this is yes, the same with the environment. The it's the is to say, that's your future, is your, 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 Right. You know, I, I think there's a human thing that most people don't belong to a political party, don't really care which government is in power. They want the best for their family and their children. Right. In this country, we have 8 million children, we have 14 million parents, and we have another 14 million grandparents. Add those together, you've got 36 million people. The UK population is 66 million. So more than half the people in this country are a grandparent, a parent, or a child. All of those people they're really interested in politics. They're interested in what's best for the child in that family. If we can mm -hmm. create a national debate, if we can persuade our politicians that actually it's a political win, as well as an economic and a societal win, to help those people have the most fulfilled life by helping those children in that relationship be the best people that they can have the best opportunities, then there's a dividend there for all of us in society. And it's not quite clicking. Um, and that's where I'm, I think, Mm. In the sort of Western world, say the US and the UK, there are four things that have fundamentally changed for this generation of children that, that our leaders, whether they're in business or in government or, or civic society, have not been, have not addressed, have not grappled with for various reasons. And I'll, I'll it's, it's, it's talk about those four things. I'll perhaps we'll run through them very quickly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the first of them is if you're under 30 now, so you were born in the 20-somethings, 2000, um, your life has lived all the time in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world where crisis has yeah. followed crisis has followed crisis. And that has an impact on um, your ability to plan your life and to, to be secure in your life um, mm. and in toxic stress because you're going to, inherit that from your parents who, who may not know what to do because there's a digital revolution and they have no idea what's going on or that there's, there's been a, a, a world economic crash and there's, there's no money or there's a war somewhere or there's a pandemic. There's been crisis after crisis after crisis. And our politicians and our leaders have had to deal with those crises on an emergency basis almost. And whether they're competent or incompetent, they've had to do that and they've not been really thinking about planning about long-term stuff. Whereas obviously there's been crises in the past, but they've not been on top of each other so quickly. So if you're you know, under 30, I, you live in this volatile world. That's, right. that's a really key difference because we're not dealing with the problems that are being presented with us. In World War II, for example, my country, all the problems that came out of that, we got a national health service. We, um, we had welfare benefits come through from that. We invented NATO. 
European Union came out of that. All sure. sort of things designed for the long-term security and prosperity mm-hmm. of others. That's not happening now. So that's one set of things. A second I, set of I, things. I want to interrupt you for just a moment because mm. um, I just I want to be a little bit more um, prescriptive or, or clear about what these crises were. If we, if I could just rattle them off really mm. quickly, the way you listed them, because I, I know that people tend to say, well, and this is a very common phrase, but kids have always had a hard, you've had to be more resilient. Mm. We have always had, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was a depression or the war or whatever. And that's true. Kids have always had to grow up in crisis, but if I, you know, you name some of them, but if I'm just going to quickly say what they are so we can mm. kind of get our heads around what is the totality? It's it's a major. Um, so mm. we have environmental crisis, which which is threatening and existential, and just that alone is something they've grown up with. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about a social justice crisis um, as the world becomes more and more unequal. You just mentioned in your country and my country as well, greater division between rich and poor, and that has happening in countries around the world. Um, economic crisis that they grew up in started in 2008 where banks failed complete insecurity i know people in my own family lost their homes and it was a major shift in their lives from that point on um you know we've all had our populist you had brexit we've had a number of crises in in politics covid19 is the the elephant in the room which you just mentioned we'll have 20 years at least or, or 50 years of fallout the mental health crisis um, from the impact, from the anxiety from all these other crises piling up on top of one another. Um, throw onto that terrorism, which really started 9-11 that has not ceased uh, for long. Social media thrown into it, so they're all comparing themselves and adding to the mental health crisis. And then, you know, we can just, you mentioned Ukraine and Russia in the book. We've now got Gaza and we've got everything kind of imploding around the world. So it's not going backwards. It's actually ramping up. So they've grown up with unbelievable pressures and it's starting to show in, in the mental health um, of adults that, and children. Exactly. And I'm just so, sort of framing that in the context of our leaders have to deal with that. Now, whether uh, right. they're you know, competent or not, they're dealing with the present. They're not thinking about the future. And I'm saying all of those crises you just rattled off, the 10 or 12 of them, none of, in the past, you haven't had that number coming so quickly and not being addressed by some fundamental change. Let's create NATO oh. to make it safer. Let's have world pen- let's have pensions for older people. Let's have free education. Let's, yeah. the, the, you know, the, 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 the sort of social revolutions of the 1960s that, that changed things. So, I'm saying we haven't had those systemic things that kind of prepare us for the rest of the 21st century when crisis is going to follow crisis. You know, we're not dealing with the with the environmental crisis any, in any which way. So, you know, mm. the weather's going to get worse. The insurances are going to go up. People are going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their jobs. And, you know, places are going to uh, 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 be, be fundamentally changed. We're not really doing anything about it because it's outside of the political cycle, perhaps, or there's other things uh, to deal with now. All of those things affect our children's future is where I'm coming yeah. from. So that's different than ever before. Yeah. The second thing that's different is um, the, the, the predominance of the impact of short-term, the pressures to make short-term decisions, whether that's in hmm. um, business, 
where increasingly private equity owns a more and more bigger portion of our assets, national assets. And, mm. you know, they've got a short term, they want to turn it around, but it's all, right. nothing wrong with that individually. But when you're, when, when, uh, you know, national resources or global resources are tied up like that, the, the decisions are made on relatively short four or five year start cycles, add to that public companies who kind of operate on quarterly cycles, the, the economy is very much driven to deliver value now, not over the long term. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's close a factory in a city and the share price might go up, the stock price might go up. But, you know, the, that company doesn't have to pay for the outcome of what's happening in that city to retrain those people. Mm. So, the, the, anyway, short-termism there. Short-termism in government is this idea of populism where you can say what you like and you don't really need to deliver it because you'll get the votes if people want, want mm-hmm. to believe you. Or, mm-hmm. or, or, um, and, you know, we've had a, a series of um, political shocks um, over the last 10 years or so as a result of that. Uh, education system, certainly in the UK, has got a lot more uh, based on leaked tables between schools. The, re- the funding in the UK of schools is how well they do in a leaked table of academic achievement. Mm. So there's a lot of pressure on young people every two years with a public exam to the next exam to be the most important thing in mm. their life. And the, the schools know that they're going to get resources from that. So there's a, there's a short term, there's an increase in short termism in that. And I then see. as you just touched on with social media and, and just media more generally, with 24 new news hour cycles where, you know, news needs to be played through very quickly because they need new news. Everything gets concertina short, short. And then with social media, what's happening right now and how you can present yourself with all the pressures of thought. So short term stuff happens. Yet as a human being, we value long term stuff. We value the environment and our long-term health and our pensions and our national security and, and the environment and the earth being able to protect us mm. and our children's futures, our children's lives. And they, there's a disconnect, there's an increasing disconnect between yeah. that which we value like that and how our institutions are operating. That's the second thing. The third thing that's fundamentally changed for our, for our children now is the digital revolution and how, how digital and technology can play such a positive part in their lives. They can learn so much new. They can be connected to so many new people. They can break down um, inequality by giving a way of of extending access. But then there's content and conduct and and sort of consumer uh, uh, and context. There's a whole risk associated with them. As the technology advances very quickly, laws Mm -hmm. and regulations and social norms around them don't catch up quickly enough. So most parents don't have a clue where their kids are online right. or really what the app is that right. they're on or the social media content that yeah. they're on and what to do about it. So they can't give advice. So they're feeling, you know, infantile, infantilized because they, they can't contribute, which, which, which mm-hmm. affects their um, ability to be strong parents, I suppose. They kind yeah. of rely on regulators who don't really know, don't catch up with what they're doing. So I can give you an example of all the social media platforms treat children over 13 as an adult. You have to, mm. if you want to go on, I won't name any of them, but any of them, basically, nearly everyone, all of them, they'll ask you, are you 13? Yet you self-identify as yes, and then you're in, and you'll see all sorts of content because they're treating you as an adult. Yet mm. you go on one of them, um, Pinterest, so I can say that because you go in their terms and conditions, and it will mm. say this site might contain content that's inappropriate for uh, uh, a child. Okay. Yet you just said that you could sign you up just to let be them in. your right. adult if you're right. 13. 
So there's a whole yeah. disconnect there that yeah. we're not dealing with. So there's this whole thing. And then the final thing that I think has changed for children, certainly in my country, I'm not sure if this is true in the US, but I suspect it, it will be, is, is demographic changes. There are less children than there mm -hmm. were when I was a child. There mm -hmm. are less, the ch those children are a less portion of all of us. Um, and, uh, you know, they're much more diverse uh, from backgrounds and not just heritage, but also the age of their mothers is going to be much more diverse than it was 30 years True. ago. Uh -huh. You're going to get 20-year-old mothers or 18-year-old mothers, and you're going to get 45-year-old mothers. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, so the, the, the experience of childhood, if you're in a family that's hmm. so diverse, yeah. it's different. Yeah. So yeah. all those kids are going to experience different things. So how do we have policies or how do we have a culture that is mm -hmm. about childhood? It's different. And, and we're right. not kind of thought about that as we're putting together the, the, the support that we right. can give our children. So uh, my book kind of touches on these four things have changed, but there's mm -hmm. opportunities that we can do things yeah. to help our children's lives that, that we've, we've yet to grapple with, but we can do. Well, let, let's move into some of the, the, you know, we have talked about a lot of the, the stressors and a lot of the issues that children are facing. And, and we have to do that. You know, we have to look wide eyed at these things and not pretend that they're not getting ahead of us or have gotten ahead of mm -hmm. us. And, and we haven't we haven't learned how to deal with them in any super productive way. Um, although, again, uh, we can talk about this, but some countries have done better than others. And it's again, where they put the value, I think, in the money. Um, however, let's talk about some of the things in the book. You had so many interesting and, and powerful chapters. I would really encourage people to, to read it just chapter by chapter and look at the different topics. I mean, well-being, of course, is, I mean, well, I think your biggest premise is that is giving some power back to children, whether it's in determining how their schools are run or I don't know, maybe what they study, how much they play. I think just some, just to touch on a little bit of it, empowerment yeah. for them. Well, I would say the learnings that I got, I sort of set out to, to, to write this book with all this research, all these ideas that I had, and then engaging mm -hmm. these 68 people, these experts across all different areas to write essays. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at what I got, and I kind of held my breath thinking, is this just a random set of ideas with no thread that goes through them, that everyone's going off in their different direction? There's nothing that I can draw uh -huh. together to learn yeah, that's that we daunting. can move forward yeah. with, with the optimism. But... And thank goodness <laughs> that I did find those three, three things, yeah. three threads. Um, and I think they, these are the things that if we start to look at from the lens of, we can really make positive changes to our countries and our society. So mm. the first one is um, around voice. Um, and how our children and their families do not have a voice in shaping their lives to the extent that they need it to, to thrive. Um, so they get stuck in systems like an education system or a health system or the welfare system or the environment, the, the, the built environment that they grow up in, that's not really designed for them. But, but mm. when they have a problem, there's nobody there to listen. They, they, they kind of, the future says no, <laughs> so they, they get stuck in something that's not listening to their individual circumstances. So a lot of children in, in our countries will have special educational needs and, and, and their disabilities and their, in the education system are kind of unique. So there's growth in autism, there's growth in uh, some disabilities, there's, there's, mm. there's a, a, a grow, growing division of inequality from, from an economic point of view. And individual circumstances don't get caught by the system. 
so that your child finds it difficult to get a diagnosis, try and get the, the right support or the, in the right type of school, and if you just get lost, and then that, that child's life just gets lost within. So, mm. so we could build systems where we involve children and families in the decision making of how those systems are set up and how they're regulated and how they're uh, designed. Um, or we could listen to feedback from them if they're not working, but we choose not to do that generally. You know, and ultimately, I would say part of the problem with that is that children don't vote. I'm not necessarily arguing that children should vote, but I'm saying because right. they don't, the a politician who allocates resources mm. within a country doesn't see them as a primary constituent, and therefore, you know, they 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 don't um, they don't get the allocation of the national resources that they they could do. But the point is, how can we give a voice to children and their families so that people who decide what gets built, what gets spent where, what programs are delivered, what what, what support is available, um, can listen to the real experience of real people who are experiencing complex lives uh, and not being listened to. Um, and why, so, so why, that, why are they not being listened to now, do you think? I mean, because I would say in this country, there's a huge uh, force that would say, we listen to kids too much. Like, you know, we need to take some of the power back from them. Because so, we're not designing <clears> our... Um, we're not designing the infrastructure that supports human life, the, the, okay. the um, community with the mind of children. So we will build a city for cars so, so that right. the roads work for, okay. for getting from A to B so you can get to work right. quickly rather than encouraging cycling or walking or our children getting to school. So we have an opportunity. You know, in my country, we need to build houses. There are not enough houses for people. So they've got to build mm. houses. They're going to have to build new towns. There okay. is an opportunity to I set see. the planning and the mm -hmm. building regulations around those towns to say they must be designed for children in mind as much as everyone else. There's a fantastic right. organization called 8 to 80 Cities, which are advocates for building a city that is where an eight-year-old and an 80-year-old can thrive, and everyone else in between will thrive because of that. Mm. Um, so they can, they Tirana, can walk the a few steps. Mm. Yeah. So Tirana, the capital of Albania, the mayor there, has revolutionized that city yeah. by making every policy through the lens of is this good for a child. So, yeah. you know, they've done all sorts of things there that are, are, are just fantastic, right down to the fact that on every child's birth, every child on their birthday uh, plants a tree. And it's become a thing where it's a special thing where you go yeah. and plant your tree. So it's, it's, it may feel a long way from the city that we know where we live, but it's possible. We sure. have to build more houses. We have to build new cities. Why don't we do it from a child's lens? Uh, uh, um, and uh, I'm, I'm so glad so, you're making that point because we make we do you know there's a lot of talk about making things environmentally so people can walk so people can you know not have to commute so far but you never hear about saying why don't we make it focused on children never once have I heard anyone say yeah. that I mean Albania is a very rare uh, example yeah. of that so yeah. that. Um, so that's beautiful. So that's one thing. They don't have enough voice. That came through. Yeah, How can we right. give them more voice? What can we do about that? The second thing is um, they're not thriving to what they could do because they're not having the variety of positive experiences in their childhood as mm -hmm. they could. And um, but by giving everybody, especially children, a variety of experience, early in life they can find what they're good at and their passions. So it's not just the academic kids that feel as though they're successful because they're getting the grades and they're getting the exam results right. at school. Yet when we're knocked over or we need, we need physiotherapy or we need recovery from something or from an injury, we need the compassion and the care skills 
um, and you know grandparents may need special care skills and everything from 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 people who don't necessarily need academic qualification but they need empathetic and right. uh, 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 and humanness and we value that in society but we're not teaching our children or we're not giving our children confidence to know if they're skillful in that that they that that's valuable in life mm -hmm. so the variety of the variety of rewards, but, but more importantly, the variety of experience. If we can help our kids find what they're good at, what they're passionate about, uh, about they will find their purpose earlier in life, and they will find out that, that the opportunities for them are like wider than the narrow thing, things that they see every day. But also, they'll find more tolerances. And one of the things that are problems in our society, I think, is that we're, not, we're only meeting people like us, wherever yeah. we're from. Yeah. And how we define who us is, is, is of course, the thing of this we should be explaining all the time. But if we give kids the opportunity to mix it up and, and, and get the tolerances and understanding that everybody lives their life like, like, like they do. But if we basically, if we can get out of the little silos that we've got, we'll find the right, we'll match the right skills with the right jobs and the right enjoyment from life. And we should do that as early as life. So how can we encourage kids to have the variety of experiences? Right. A tiny example I would give in, in the UK is around job experience, work experience for kind of teenagers. So if they're in school, other kids will find an opportunity to get some work experience, internship kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're a middle class, you know, and a richer person, you'll be connected and you'll find somebody who's a friend of yours or a friend of a friend or a friend somewhere in your silos that will give your kid a job. If you don't have that access, you, you're a you massive get that opportunity straight away. Mm. So why mm. can't we open up that network stuff to all kids so mm. that we integrate it into our either education programs or our civic space so that every child has a right to experience different kind of jobs or different kinds of opportunities or, you know, give them the opportunity to do that. Um, so, so that was presented our country in so many different ways. And then the final thing that was the thread that came through what everyone was talking about is that we tend not to value well-being as part of core part of being able to to thrive we 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 as as living in the societies that we live in now always tend to value quantity over quality more stuff more qualifications mm -hmm. you know um than and and actually sometimes that's at the expense of a quality of life and a mental wellness and a sort of uh, the longevity of life in terms of um, uh, being at peace with yourself. But, but, you know, we put a lot of pressure on our kids to do more all the time, and we fail to spot when we to stop and not push too far. Um, so we have uh, GCSE exams at 16 for our kids, for example. Now, we tell them, most parents will tell them they're really, really important, most important part of your life so far, and you can get like five, you can get 10 or 12, and really, if you get, you know, you can push your child to take an extra one, but it's going to make no difference to their lives ultimately in the long term. Mm. Um, that one extra, whether it's five or six or whether it's 10 or 11. Right. But the pressure right. that kind of gets put on is just yeah. an endemic thing within society. So how can we start to measure? You know, you only change when things you can measure. Um, and, mm. and how do we get a better measurement for what that well-being is, um, especially with our children? Like those statistics I gave. You know the, the 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 mental health challenges of our children in this toxic environment, where there's this buka world I talked about. You know, have gone up 60% in this country, uh, and we're um, in the last three years, and where we we need to do practically something uh, about that.
You know, I think it's really fascinating that it all comes down to what seems like the most basic thing, which is well-being. And like, how can that most basic thing be ignored? So, you know, maybe someone doesn't need to take trig, you know, maybe or some advanced mm -hmm. chemistry. Maybe they need to take, as you said, something that would that would suit them more empathetically or they could help people. Those things are are ignored. That is the well-being of the child, which but there is this pressure to everyone has to get better grades and and in certain subjects even you know why why should we all study a subject that that is not for us you know at least the levels that we have to study them at it makes no sense so i just thought it was interesting that every single person i think or maybe you just pulled that thread through as the author to say that just basic simple well-being is what should be focused on I mean, these are simple yeah. things you're saying, you know, you're saying, give them agency, give them a voice, um, give them varied and positive experiences and, and, and tend to their well-being. I mean, you could, it, it's a priori, we, we are almost born knowing that, but. So here's a very simple, simple example of that variety of, you know, if, if you're lucky enough to live in a house that values education or has a history of right. education throughout the generations. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the summer holidays, you are much more likely than, a, than a, from a child from a family that hasn't had that heritage to visit a museum, to have a book in the house to be able to, to pick right. up and read, to mm -hmm. go and search stuff on the internet, to have access to the internet, all of that sort of stuff. So by the time the difference between when you've left school at the end of one school year and you start to go in a, a month or two later in that summer period, there's going to be a difference outside of school to the education possibilities of those two different sets of kids. So how can we help just take literacy? How can we help more kids be literate? Now, you said earlier, I am lucky enough to be a trustee of Sesame Workshop in Manchester Sesame Street. 53 years ago, they worked out to use television to help kids learn oh. ABCs, one, two, threes on television mm -hmm. outside mm -hmm. of school. Fantastic, and it's a wonderful organization. It's made a difference to so many millions of children's lives over right. the last 50 or so years. One of the things in my book that is a fantastic idea, I think, that will cost absolutely nothing, but could change the literary, literacy um, opportunities for so many children, is to have subtitles, closed captions, on programming for children on by default, rather than off by default, and you can hmm. turn them on. Mm -hmm. So every child's program, whether it's on every broadcast program at the moment, has to have, certainly under UK legislation, I'm not 100% sure about the US, has to have closed captions made. The broadcaster doesn't have to put them on, but gives the consumer, the viewer, the option to put right. them on. Right. I'm saying to change the law the other way around. So they're on, anyone can turn them off as soon as they want, mm -hmm. but keep them oh, on. Okay. I've seen academic evidence to show that literacy rates double for children who watch them an average amount of programming that they watch. It's just so a passive, UK, passively they learn by... Yeah. yeah. So in the UK, the average child watches about 11 hours of content a week, television mm -hmm. and YouTube and the internet. Okay. If all of that had subtitles on and they could read at the same time, over a year, they would read more words than if they read the entire Harry Potter series, the high, entire Narnia, the entire Lord of mm. the Rings series, and everything that Roald Dahl ever wrote in one year. Mm. And they're a child for 15, 16, 17 years. So what, that costs nothing, 
because they're making the closed captions anyway. It would help disadvantaged kids much more because it will bring reading into the home in holidays. Interesting. um, So it would help it with equality. And um, it it will it will help blur. It will help entertainment educate, um, which is what the heart of Sesame has been from the very beginning. Sure. So there's just an idea of a positive thing that we can do, and it doesn't reduce anyone's choice to do anything. You can turn them off now instead of turning mm-hmm. them on. Yeah. You know, it, I think that's again that's a great idea. I've never heard that before, and I, I love that. Um, it makes me um, want to think about how many things that you bring up in this book that really it's not a matter of cost. Like, so people will look at some, I keep going back to these countries like the Netherlands and Norway, and I think Finland as well, where they do, they do spend a lot more on their children. They spend a lot more on childcare. They spend more on education. They, you know, there is a higher output, but Um, and, and there are good results, but I don't know if it's because of the money or because the focus is on saying, let's, let's put our energy here. Cause so many things that you talk about, whether it's play like this, there's such, some of them are very, very simple. Like what, what the one you just mentioned, yeah. or just building more playgrounds or just letting kids play closer to the home. It, it's just a matter of thinking about it. Not necessarily. But some things our, do cost money. Well, uh, you know, yeah, they I do. Can... Yeah. But a lot and, of them don't. You know, but, I've got yeah. an argument, an economic argument I can share if you want to get into it about why, how, how we can pay for some big, big things. But some things don't cost a lot of money. The thing I just talked about then, you know, if we're talking about variety, you know, what, what the Netherlands does fantastically um, is, um, is having co-located nursery, preschools, and day centers for older people or yeah. older people's homes yeah and so amazing. they're together and they're learning together they're learning from each other they're doing stuff together playing games whatever together and the benefits of that socially intergenerational interactions showing that they're learning from each other mm-hmm. um understanding each other and how society is built mm-hmm. uh, economically it's cheaper you don't have to have two separate places you can have them all right. in one place yeah and then socially, as in families can see each other better, grandparents and, uh, uh, and children, et cetera, really works. So I, you, we can look, you can look in my book and you can see the evidence from those different nations where that is more common. Mm-hmm. We started trialing some of that in the UK to some positive results. So that, that's mm-hmm. another kind of smallish kind of thing that, 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 that we can do that doesn't, doesn't cost, it actually saves money. But if we, it, you know, but there is, there are significant, things that you know will cost money that um that oh, i can well, argue that can make an economic case for arguing why we should invest in that what would be an example of one of those that, that we would need to put money into um world-class childcare, for example so um uh so to enable parents to work um you know, there's, 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 there is evidence, this is without getting into where children should be brought up, but if, if, if parents want to work, they should be um, comfortable that their child is in world-class childcare. Now, I can pick a country where this is done exceptionally, and we might not think it's the greatest country in the world from oh. the values, uh, etc. But, you know, Cuba, yeah. 99.9% of their preschool children go to yeah. world-class daycare, uh, uh, nursery, uh, preschool, preschool. They've chosen to invest a lot of money in that. Now, 
I'm not saying we should build a, a society like Cuba, but I am saying there are things from all sorts of places around the world where we right. can learn. So if you're going to set up a world-class um, nursery system and preschool system, you know, it's about making it affordable for average families, all families. It's about understanding to what extent the government might need to subsidize that. It's about looking at the supply side of that. And, you know, at the moment in the UK, people who work in the nursery settings are basically paid the minimum wage. They could get the same amount of money as stacking shelves in a supermarket. So right. how can we professionalize and make uh, qualifications and, and a career for those people wanting to get into that? Because if we all stand back from this, can we think of a more important thing than those early years developments are giving the opportunities for our children to get world-class early years development um, at the same time as the parents can get satisfied with their parenting, their child development, and their careers right, and their opportunity yeah. to the improve their family benefits. Yeah, the benefits yeah. just go on and on, and they and they always pay for themselves at the end of this at the end of the day. You know, you, yeah. yes, you pay pay a higher salary now for for childcare, high quality childcare, but then eventually you get these children who are able to run a country and able to manage their lives yeah. and, and every other thing. You know, we're getting close to the end of the of our um, time together, and I wonder if you'd want to sort of summarize your 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 perspective on on going forward and what you recommended, you know, in the book and what, um, you know, what your I, I don't know how to okay. I'm going to let you put the words together for me. Okay, <laughs> I think you know, just generally standing still, we go backwards in society in you know, evolution is all around the ones that win are the ones that adapt to a changing environment. It's not the biggest species or the biggest individuals or the fastest. It's those that can adapt to a changing environment mm -hmm. to succeed the best. They thrive. Let's look at that as a society level and let's look at that as, as, as individuals. We have to adapt to a changing environment. We've already spoken that our environment has changed so it's a volatile and certain world with crises all the time, where short-termism is dominating, where we've not got to terms with what uh, digital is doing to our lives. We're not maximizing the positives, we're protecting ourselves against the negatives, especially for our children. And we've, our demographics are changing and we're not adapting to that. But we have the opportunities because the wonderful thing about human beings, I, I think that the, 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 the thing that's unique about us that's helped us be the dominant species on Earth is that we have imaginations mm. that can imagine things that don't exist mm. and we can have the wherewithal to make them happen. So you, I, any of the listeners or viewers to this can have had a dream last night and have woken up this morning with an idea that nobody else has ever thought of, no human being has ever thought of ever. Someone did that, they invented the wheel at some point, right? And they've got we've got the opportunity to imagine and then create with collaboration and creativity and trial and error and in technology to create a better world and it history of humankind is littered with that history of the last century is littered with that it's brilliant we can advance we live better life uh we can live better life we've got to focus that i believe we've got the opportunity to focus that on improving the lives of our children for the next decade um, so that um, uh, so that, that we, could, we they can thrive and have a better world. And I think that going back to Mandela's quote, I would say, you know, what does what does a society reveal about itself uh, mm. in the way it treats its children? Well, if we value childhood, we can value it. Depriving childhood 
because thriving children become thriving adults and we'll have a thriving society when we have thriving adults running it, working within it. And that's good for those children. They're going to thrive. It's, good. it's also good for those of us that aren't children now because we'll be surrounded by thriving children, adults that will look after right. us in our older age. But more fundamental to all of that is an existential question we've got to ask ourselves is, do we value thriving childhood because we value thriving childhood? Full stop. They're an important part of hmm. society in that they give us a perspective, they give us hope, they give us curiosity, they give us a mindset, they give us unconditional love. And, and if we compartmentalize childhood into it's over there, or we're not investing in it, or children aren't welcome in this kind of public space, mm -hmm. or it's all about marketizing their childhood with their toys and their education and it's all about getting a better job in the future, not finding a rounded human being who can be the best person that they can be. If that's what we're going down, we are not going to get to a place where all of our children can thrive. And we are not going to get to a place where we will discover stuff about ourselves and find the next inventions and the next entrepreneurs and the next carers because we're not, we're not valuing the 20% of the people who are children in our society and what they bring to us and what we can learn from them, not mm. really what they learn from us, but what we learn about grounding ourselves in what true joy is in a child's life. Mm. Uh, for the, the first book that I wrote, I remember interviewing um, uh, uh, a senior person at uh, IDEO, which is a, a oh, Californian yeah. uh, ideas company, fantastic yeah, company. My nephew works there, yeah. He said this off-the-cuff thing to me, which has really stuck with me all these years later. He said, just imagine what the world would be like if every office just had children's laughter piped through the sound system and you just heard children's laughter constantly. And I thought that is, you know, as we're obsessed by we've got to grow GDP or we've got to make a more efficient car to get somewhere 10 minutes faster or whatever it is like that, we could just ground ourselves in maybe we ought to hear children laughing more, more often. Even um, you just saying that makes me, I, I just have this joy just thinking, I can't even hear it. And I can, it makes me feel lighter, you know, maybe yeah. not all day long. We don't, <laughs> no, but, but just, yeah, I think it's, that's such a powerful, just the joy. If we had nothing but the joy from children, we, our lives would be so much so I've better. I've had the privilege of, of, like we all have of being a child. I've had the absolute privilege of having children and I've had the incredible honor of working with children for 30 years in entertainment with Nickelodeon and in trying to make fun of uh, the weaning process and the, the, the nutrition process with my company, Ellis Kitchen. And what I've learned from all of that is children really can teach adults so much. They are mm -hmm. so important to life and they are, to me, the Great. perfect human being. So the imagination, the free thinking, the self-confidence that they bring and the fact that we were all one once means that we do have the ability to think like one at some stage and, and, and remember and that how important childhood is to, to, to all of us um, because we value childhood as well as the fact that our ch we, we, it's in our self-interest that our children have successful lives because they overlap with our own lives and our lives <laughs> will be better. Well, I, that's, yeah. a, that's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful way to uh, wrap it up. I just, I really want to thank you for starting the conversation because, uh, I think that's, it's, as you said, you started Ella's kitchen. There would, any of us can start anything, anytime, right? You started Ella's kitchen. You had this idea, you woke up and it changed a lot of lives for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, 
writing this book is the same thing. It's like, let's take this conversation, really study it, really elevate it and spread it around the world and let more people, you know, take, take it and make it into something. So that's exactly what um, the, the book isn't say, oh, here's the solution. This is what we should do. We should uh, do everything that's in here. I'm saying there's some ideas in here that can Hold it up a little more slowly. <laughs> Please, there we go. Raising Please the nation. digest yeah. it. Um, yeah. Comment on it. You know, there's, there's a website. There's hashtags. If we want to get a conversation going, yeah. let's find a way to see if, as a people, we do value childhood if we get an awareness of it's really important that childhood is not is is not succeeding. We're not we're not valuing childhood, and let's let's start to think of how we could change that because it's happened in the past. We've got an opportunity now, and um, without driving children, um, we haven't got a great place to go to. Let's start a movement. And I it's think got dark I th behind me, so I'm very sorry if uh, no, it's but okay. we've had a lot of at least, sunset behind me. I know. You can tell how long we've been talking. We went from very <laughs> bright to very dark, but your face is still lit up. Yeah, let's keep this conversation going. I would invite people to to write you and to you know to write me and to, you know I'd love to start it a little bit more in this country because or a lot more because I think it's, it's brilliant what you've done and I. I, like it, you just have to say it. Some, somebody just has to start something and say it and give it some energy, and it and it can uh, it can grow. So, thank you I so much. The thing for... I, I finished on was you know, no. you your, your, the whole podcast is about changing the world for the mm. better. And um, yes, it takes individuals to to be brave enough to stand up and say something different that changes the world. But it's it, they're not necessarily the most important people. The followers, the people that. that are, that the first people to adopt first, that change yes. or believe in that change or spread the yeah. news of that change are the real change makers. Um, but, you know, people who, you know, children have changed the world. You look at Malala now or Greta Thunberg, um, uh, uh, you look at how children are used in the media, they're so emotional. You know, images of war focus on children because they're so emotional to us. Opportunities, uplifting things about children's joy, make news. Um, children like Louis Braille, Braille, the way blind people read. Louis Braille did that at 14. There's children that change the world themselves. Yeah. But without, you know, with, with, with the hope that they bring us, we can change to a better place. We can always get better. And that's what my message is. Um, and uh, we can be comp we can be optimistic that there is a better future to build. And then let's build it. <laughs> right. All right. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll continue the Very conversation. Welcome, Thank you All for right. having me. Thank you. Bye bye.